You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches hearts, knowing what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are continuing in our series in the book of Romans, in the midst of cultural upheaval and racial division and uh, mounting persecution against the Christian faith that was occurring in the first century, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome in order to ground them in the good news that God had formed a new humanity, one that's not based on race, one that's not based on social status or even our religious performance, but is based completely on faith in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. And as it's been mentioned, Romans 8, where we've been camped out here for a while, Romans 8 highlights the work of the Holy Spirit who awakens us to this new life and he gives us the power to live into it. He is the one who guarantees our place in God's family and he is the one who is preparing us for this glorious future that awaits us in Christ. Now, Paul is continuing to build on this theme of hope. Why do we have hope today? We have hope because of this plan of renewal that Paul is talking about here in Romans 8. God is setting the world free from its bondage to sin and death, and he's transforming life, and he has already begun that work in and through us, his people. His church, in fact, the church is the epicenter of this plan of renewal that's going to touch every part of creation. And as we see today, his unfolding plan to renew our lives cannot be hindered. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Now, if the last year, 15 months or whatever the heck it's been now, has taught us anything, it's that plans are made to be broken. In fact, that was the thing that we could plan on. The moment that we began to plan for something, something else was like beelining toward it to crush and break that plan. The last 15 months have been filled with broken plans. But not so with God. Have you stopped to consider that over the last 15 months, with all, 15 months, with all the devastation that our world has seen and even we've seen as a community, that God never once was hindered? God never once was set back. God never once was frustrated. God never once was surprised. God never had to go back to the whiteboard and kind of rethink his ap- approach and his plan to this whole world thing. And so because of that, I've titled this morning's message, God's Unbreakable Plan. Our plans 
fall apart. God's plans are unbreakable. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, because of our religious uh, heritage, sort of pseudo-religious heritage as a nation, today there are these remnants of the past, these remnant phrases that have morphed into godless, generic, kind of feel-good little statements. And one of those is, it goes something like this. Don't worry, it's all going to work out in the end. All things work together for good. Let's take away, like, the God part and those who love and trust him and are called according to his purpose. But, like, don't worry, it's all going to work out in the end. But let's, let's honestly poke a hole in that statement. Will it? Is everything going to work out well in the end? Just generally speaking, how do we know that? What is the guarantee for that? And here's a question to consider. Is it generally going to work out well for everyone? Because how we answer that really separates us in our Christian faith from other faiths like universalism. Is it going to work out well for everyone? Just generally speaking, it's all going to pan out. Now, I'm reminded of a classic piece of American literature called Of Mice and Men. It follows the story of George and Lenny, and they're working on farms, and they're trying to raise money in order to purchase their own farm, and they dream of growing their own vegetables and selling eggs to buy whiskey, and, and Lenny is just mesmerized by this idea of taking care of the rabbits. You remember Lenny and his rabbits? And as the story unfolds, it becomes really clear that this dream of owning their own farm is really out of reach. Plans are not panning out the way that they should, but Lenny, for one reason or another, doesn't grasp this. And he continues to ask George, tell me about the farm we're going to own. Tell me about the farm we're going to own. And George, realizing that this plan is not panning out, he continues to tell Lenny about the, about the farm that they're going to own. And the story ends really with it all falling apart. They don't purchase the farm. It ends in death and it ends in tragedy. And this little novella really captures the, the painful truth that plans do not pan out the way that we had hoped for. They just don't. And life's twists and its turns have a way of shattering our dreams. And really, the, I think one of the points is that there's a distinct emptiness and disappointment in giving vague, uh, generic promises that may or may not turn out. And so, what makes this passage in Scripture any different? Is Paul like George. Is he just giving us the story that we want to hear, a feel-good narrative that he hopes will help us endure and get through? Is this an unrealistic promise of it just all kind of generally working out in the end? Well, let's take a, a closer look at this passage. It's probably one of the most often quoted passages in Scripture and perhaps one of the most misunderstood. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage under three headings. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at weak people, divine providence, and an unstoppable process. Let's look first at weak people. Look with me again in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. One of the hardest things for us to grasp 
is that spiritual weakness is not a liability, it's an asset. And I'm going to say that again because it's going to be lost on us until we slow down and we grasp that. Spiritual weakness is not a liability in your life, it is actually an asset. And the sad reality is that we spend so much of our lives resisting and resenting the very weakness that the Spirit of God is attracted to and drawn to. And so for every moment that we are convinced that we have to be strong in our own strength is another experience of God's help that we have just forfeited. We can have God's strength, we can have our strength, we can't have both. I hear a lot of people who loathe the fact that they don't feel the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. I don't feel God at work in my life. I don't see the evidences of his power and help in my life. Maybe it's not because you're not strong enough. Maybe it's because you're not weak enough. Maybe it's because you're not needy enough. Maybe it's because you're not dependent enough. Maybe it's because you and I still think that our lives and our future rests in our hands. No, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, not in our abilities, not in our strengths, not in our experience, not in our ability to make good plans and to complete them. The Spirit of God works in our weakness, and we will never experience the full measure of the Spirit's help and his power until we're willing to own our weakness. Are you willing to own your spiritual weakness today? It's vital, it's vital. Now this is what the Apostle Paul had to discover the hard way. Uh, This is just a quick statement from Paul, but there is rich history in how he came to this conclusion. In fact, he tells about it in 2 Corinthians. There's this distinct weakness and infirmity that the apostle Paul was dealing with. We don't know what it was, but we know that he resented it. And he pleaded with God, take this away, take away this weakness, take away this thorn in my flesh. And then God finally responds and says, no, my grace is sufficient for you for my power, God speaking here, is made perfect in what? Weakness. That's strange. So how does Paul respond? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. I won't just own it. I'm going to boast in my my weakness. Well, why would you do that, Paul? Here's his reasoning. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul's saying, I want the power of Christ. Well, how are we going to get it? By boasting in our weakness. For the sake of Christ, then I am content not resent, content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And here's why. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That turns our world upside down, doesn't it? That redefines weakness. That redefines strength. It is in the very places where we lack that the power of Christ comes to rest. And this is good news because what Paul is talking about here is an area in our life where I'm almost 100% confident that we all lack. 
prayer. How's your prayer life? I don't meet a lot of people that are like, everything else in my life is falling apart, but my, my prayer life is just solid, strong, strong. Most of us struggle in prayer. I, full disclosure, struggle in prayer. In fact, if you were to ask me what is the greatest area of weakness in your life, I'd probably say prayer. Because I'm self-confident. I get it into my mind that I hold my life in my hands. Therefore, I do not pray as I ought. But here's the good news. Who does the Spirit love to help? Those who look at their own prayer life and say, I suck at this. I'm not very good at this. And the Spirit says, I'm on it. I'm on it. Look at me again in verse 26 and 27. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, one of the, uh, one of the difficult things that people experience when they're going through something very hard, something very challenging, whether it's death of a loved one uh, or um, health crisis or tragedy or maybe even just something not necessarily bad but just life-changing, something dramatically changing in their life. They, they don't know what kind of help they're supposed to ask for. So people, well-meaning people within the church, which we ought to do, by the way, come to that, peop- come to the, that person and say, how can I help you? But if you've ever been in this situation, you know what I'm talking about. You don't know what to ask for because it's so different. It's something you've never experienced before. You don't know what you need. Therefore, you don't know what to ask for, what kind of help you need. And likewise, in prayer, the Holy Spirit helps us in ways that we can't express. With those groanings too deep for words, we don't, we don't know what we ought to ask for. The Spirit does. We don't know the mind of God and therefore the perfect prayers to pray. The Spirit does. The Spirit does. And He's interceding for you and me. You know how when someone can look at you without you even saying a word or describing how you're doing, they they, they can read you like a book. They just know how you're doing. They can see right through you. They can see right through the facade. You don't even have to say a word, they know. How much more uh, intuitive, if you will, is the Holy Spirit involved in our lives? He knows you better than you know you. He knows what you need more than you know what you need. And as we come to God in prayer, sometimes without even the words to express our deepest longings and our deepest emotions, sometimes all we can do is just let out a groan like, God, ah. If you haven't, ah, before God, you're not, you're not living, friend. You, you gotta just ugly cry, just ah. And the Spirit says, I know exactly what you mean. Say no more. As our intercessor, he takes the inexpressible and he translates it into prayers that please the Father. How amazing is this? And so what this means is that the only way for a Christian to be bad at prayer is to not pray at all. You can't 
be a bad prayer unless you don't pray. <laughs> Groans, rambling, fumbling through your words, uh, getting distracted and five minutes later realizing, uh, wait, I was praying, where am I? Frustrated complaints, silly celebration, trivial conversation. The Spirit is all about it. But what place does he have in prayerlessness? So as we step back and we see these verses in the context of Romans 8, we see that our future has far less to do with our ability to plan well and more to do with our trust and our willingness to pray. Should we be responsible? Yeah. But being responsible, seeking wise counsel, setting goals, making plans, getting after it, they're just simply not enough to align us with the will of God for our lives. Only dependence upon the Spirit through prayer can do that. Can do that. Look, you guys still with me? You knew it was coming. Secondly, divine providence. Divine providence. Look with me in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Would you mind leaving this up for just a moment? And we know. We may, know, we may not know what we ought to pray for. We do not know what the future holds. There's a lot in our lives that we just don't know. In fact, the older I get, the more I realize, the less I know. I thought Christian maturity meant knowing a lot of stuff. I think Christian maturity is the humility to acknowledge you just don't know nothing. You, are just, you just stand before the infinite and you're undone. You go, ah, okay. There it is, grown. You're not living. So, there's a lot that we don't know, but this we can and this we must know, Paul says. That for those who love God, now this is not a general feel-good statement for all humanity. Again, this is a promise for those who love and trust God that all things, not just the favorable things, not just the things that we can understand, not just the things that we can get on board with, not just the things that fit neatly into our life goals and our plans for our lives, but all things work together for good. They may not feel good. They may not look good. They may not be received as good, but they are working towards our good for those who are called. Again, this is not just a random promise to all of humanity, but God's children, sidebar, all the more reason to be preaching the gospel and making disciples, because if we love the people around us and we care about their ultimate good, there's my first breath, then we're going to share with them the love and grace of Jesus Christ. We can't say we love someone and want their good without sharing the love of Jesus Christ with them for those who are called according to his purpose. This is not about shoehorning God into our will and our plans for our life. This is us getting on board with God and what he is doing. As Jesus taught us to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be done. One single term to uh, describe this, a term that we don't use very often, but every single one of us believers is depending upon every second of the day, is a term called providence. 
providence has been described as God's hidden hand at work in our lives and in our world, in the seen and in the unseen, in the good and in the bad, in the painful and in the joyful. God is at work and he is fulfilling his good and perfect purposes always, even when we can't make sense of it. In the Heidelberg Catechism, question 27 asks, what do you understand by the providence of God? What do you mean by this whole providence thing? And the answer is this. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come to us, listen to these words, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Life is not simply a series of random events. Siri, Siri thought I was calling her. Siri, off. I don't know. Okay, I don't do this technology thing. Okay. <sighs> Even God was sovereign over that. I have to just acknowledge that. It's not random. Uh, it's not a meaningless, chaotic mess. In fact, the only thing worse than suffering is suffering without meaning. We suffer twice when there is no hope of redemption. We suffer twice when we are incapable of seeing something bigger being unfolded. We just grit our teeth and just hope that the chaotic nothingness just finally passes over us once and for all. But the people of God have this truth to cling to, that while so much of our life is outside of our control, nothing is outside of our loving God's control. And while our plans are constantly failing, his plans do not. Now, I know, I know that this is going to challenge our faith. This doesn't settle well because we begin to retrace the last 15 months. We begin to retrace the pain in our lives and we begin to ask really big existential questions. It raises all sorts of questions about why God would allow this and why God would allow this. And I can't answer all those for you. But we can't overlook the beauty that Paul is laying out here for us. And it's this, that God is not a distant, you know, spectator in the sky. God is not a helpless, passive deity that's just sort of cheerleading along as we stumble through life. He is our sovereign king who is in control. And he rolls up his sleeves and he gets involved in the nitty gritty of our lives with the wisdom and might to take the best and the worst of human experience and work it for our good every single time. And we see this in the incarnation where Jesus willingly took on our weakness and our struggle. This is not just something God hurls our direction. This is something that God himself subjected himself to. 
Jesus knows what it's like to submit to the Father's will even when it's going to be costly and painful. Jesus knows what it's like to be devastated, to experience failure and loss and rejection and even death. And yet, because he turned tragedy into triumph through his death and resurrection, it's now a promise that we can bank on that he's going to turn our tragedy into triumph as well. The cross means that suffering will never, ever, ever be meaningless for the Christian again. Now, uh, Corey Ten Boone uh, went on time to get into her life, but she experienced a lot of ups and downs, but some serious tragedy and suffering in her life. She wrote a poem called The Tapestry Poem. Imagine a tapestry being woven. And it goes like this. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forgets he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in this pattern that he's planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. What's he doing in your life? I don't know all the details. But for the believer, as this poem illustrates, he's weaving in the dark threads along with the flashy, shiny, enjoyable ones as well. Now, you may have experienced a number of things over this last year that didn't turn out well. Plans fell apart. Relationships ended. Jobs dried up. And even in our church, friends and family members died. For goodness sakes, who would have the audacity to look at that and say, that's good? You see, this raises an important question. And I'm not going to be able to tidy this up for you and put a bow on it. But I'm just going to lead you into the mystery to linger with me. And the question is, what is our good then? Because clearly God doesn't look upon suffering and say, that's good. Clearly God doesn't look upon our suffering and pain with joy and delight. And so what is the, the good that God is working in all of it? Well, Paul graciously tells us the point of all this. That the tapestry, he gives us a glimpse of the, the top of the tapestry so that we can see what God is up to. Look with me in verse 29. To be conformed to the image of his son. What is the good that God is working? Here it is. Us becoming like Christ. Us becoming like Jesus. And this is important for us to know in every season of life that God's ultimate good plan for your life is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. There is no greater goal 
There is no higher aim. There's nothing waiting beyond this call to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And what this means then is that his ultimate goal for our life is not our comfort. And it's not our convenience. And it's not our financial success. And it's not our health. And it's not our personal goals being accomplished. It's you and I looking and loving like Jesus Christ by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. Full stop. And the good and sometimes painful truth is that he will stop at nothing to ensure that he completes the good work that he's began in us. Nothing stops God at work within his people. Not even us. And so that leads us to the last point. An unstoppable process. Look with me again in verse 29 and 30 and if we can leave this one up as well. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Within these two verses, Paul lays out God's process of us being conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. This is an unstoppable wave, and it has come about through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He sent an irreversible tide through human history that we cannot stop. And so let's look at these statements one by one. First, for those whom he foreknew. What we see is that God's plan for our lives begins long before we decided to follow Jesus. It begins in his decision to enter into a loving relationship with us. To know in the Bible is so much more than just intellectual knowledge. This is not just saying that God looked down the corridor of time and knew who would follow him. No, to love means to be intimate with and to be in relationship with someone. In fact, the first time we're introduced to the, to the idea of someone knowing another is Adam knew Eve and they conceived a son. Knowledge is just not intellectual assent. Knowledge is intimate relationship. To be foreknown is to be foreloved. And it's not that we loved God first, but as the apostle John would tell us, God loved us first and he chose to enter into relationship with us it says he also predestined us now this has been such a controversial term and i don't think paul was intending to stir controversy i definitely am not trying to do that today but let's look at the beauty here our lives are not left up to chance or fate or even our own fickle faith And while we do have free will and the freedom to to choose life and death, the fact that we've been broken by sin means that we will always choose the wrong thing. But the good news is that our new life has been determined or destined by God. We are being directed by him. Our will is being transformed to desire him. From beginning to end, God is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Amen? 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. This is God's effectual calling where he awakens us to the voice of the Spirit so that we can respond to the gospel. Think about Jesus coming to the tomb of his best friend Lazarus, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And at his commanding voice, Lazarus rose from the grave. So the Spirit speaks into our lives and says, come to life, and we come to life. And those he called, he also justified. Now, we talked about this term quite a bit. This means that because Jesus was condemned on the cross and he transferred his righteousness to us, we are forgiven and declared righteous before God. And finally, those whom he justified, there is so much meat here. We're just able to kind of gloss over it. And finally, those whom he justified, he also glorified. As we've seen in Romans 8, we are awaiting the renewal of life where we will experience unhindered freedom with perfected bodies and perfected souls where we won't experience sin and sorrow and death anymore we will simply experience life and freedom forever but notice something here and the reason I, I, i've titled this last point an unstoppable process is because these words are written as if they have already happened. He foreknew us, yes. And he predestined us, yes. And he called and, and justified us, yes. But what about glorified? Look at that. Isn't that strange? He also glorified us. Paul is talking about something that is still to come in the future as if it has already occurred. Now, does this mean that we've missed the boat? Does this mean that everyone's fears that came out when, you know, the book uh, Left Behind came out were like, did I get left behind? Like, are all those fears legitimate? No. Paul's not saying it's already happened. Paul is saying it's as good as done. The future is sure. I got time for one story and I'm done. Uh, in an early, early release from J. Cole, there's this interlude called Sideline. And he talks about the day that he's driving, and he gets a text message that his little mixtapes and his, you know, all of the effort that he's put in has finally paid off. He's been signed by a major label, I believe it was Rock Nation. And he gets this text while he's driving that he's been signed to a major label, and he is freaking out about what just happened to his life. And he says no less, uh, no more rather than 10 seconds later, he hears the sirens of a police officer, and he looks back and he sees the flashing lights. He's being pulled over, and he'd been driving with a revoked license for the last few years. And he spends the night in jail. He goes from being signed to a major label to automatically being cuffed and sent to jail, and he says, that one night in jail was different than any other I could ever imagine. And he really, he shares about this resolve that he's experienced and this hope that he's experienced where he's able to endure this, this, you know, hard situation with his chin up knowing the life that's awaiting him in the morning. See where I'm going? The promise of God's unbreakable plan doesn't make challenges and suffering and setbacks enjoyable. It doesn't make it easy but it provides us with the strength and the resolve that we know what the morning is bringing. We know where this thing is leading. We know what awaits God's
people. And with that knowledge comes confidence. Here's my application. The people of God walk with a distinct confidence because of the hope that we have in the providence of God. And the Heidelberg Catechism, how's that connection? J. Cole, the Heidelberg Catechism, he says this. We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Are you in his hands? Have you loved and trusted this good and sovereign Father? Today is the day of salvation. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...